Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. Now we're going to enter the second half of the book of Revelation. The culmination of the first half was the intermission, the interlude, there before the seventh seal, as we get the second picture of the day of the Lord, of, of Christ's second coming, where we are told very clearly that the way the church wins, the way we fight this battle for Jesus, is to imitate Jesus to become loving, sacrificing followers of the Lamb of God. That's the high point around which everything else is going to center. That beeping is my coffee pot turning off. So, so far, we've had the letters to the seven churches, a vision of God's throne room, and then the beginnings of these series of sevens. And we've had the seven seals that ended with a picture of the day of the Lord. We've had the seven trumpets which ended with a picture of the day of the Lord. We're going to have seven bowls, which is another picture of the time between Jesus' resurrection and his second coming that will end with the day of the Lord. But before we do that, before we see all of the second half, chapters 12 through 22, John pushes pause again. He likes to do this, and he's going to give us a series of signs. So chapters 12 through 14 are these signs. Signs are symbols. They explore the message of the open scroll in greater depth. In chapter 12, we see a cosmic battle. This is going to say to us and give us the answer to what lies behind the suffering of the seven churches. This story began way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. When Adam and Eve mess it up and get kicked out of the Garden of Eden, and the consequences are that the serpent would strike at at human's heel, but eventually there would be a woman who would crush the head of the serpent. So the serpent represents the source of all evil, and here is presented as a dragon. The dragon attacks a woman and her seed. So this would be the Messiah and the Messiah's people. The Messiah is the seed. The Messiah defeats the dragon with death and resurrection, and the dragon is cast to earth. There, the dragon inspires hatred and persecution of the Messiah's people. So the serpent, the dragon, that represents Satan, who we've already talked about, got kicked out of heaven, took a third of the demons, so that one-third idea is there, the the threes, the, the trinity as well, and goes about creating hatred and persecution and all these things that are evil that keep us from fulfilling God's purpose and bringing God's will fully on earth. And the Messiah and Jesus and Jesus' people work against that. We work to bring God's will on earth as it is in heaven. We see that God's people, Jesus' followers, the Messiah and the Messiah's people, will conquer by resisting the evil influences, even if they have to resist with their very life. 
So John is saying to his original audience that neither Rome nor any other nation nor any human being is the real enemy. There are dark spiritual forces at work behind and through what is happening. We want to be sure that we fight the real source of evil and not those who are victims or even willing players in the evil. We have to get at the root. It's kind of like pulling up a weed. You can't just pull up the weed you see above the ground because it'll just spurt right back up. You have to go down and get the root. Kind of like killing kudzu. It's hard to kill because it keeps coming back. We want to kill the root of evil, which is the source of rebellion to wanting something other than God's will. Jesus' followers announce his victory by remaining faithful and loving, loving our enemies, just like the slain lamb did. Then in chapter 13, we get a picture of an earthly battle. So there's a spiritual battle happening. There's also an earthly battle because this is happening not just in the world we can't see. It does happen before our eyes. We can point to it in our physical world. So John retells the previous conflict, the spiritual battle, but now from an earthly perspective. And he uses symbolism that comes to us from Daniel chapters 7 through 12. We have two beasts who are empowered by the dragon. So the spiritual dragon, Satan, empowers human people, people we can see on earth who are beastly in the way they behave. The two beasts are one, national military power that conquers by violence. It's not just one. We're not looking to identify one country. This would stand for all the times that military power gets used as violence to control, conquer, and put down so that some experience power and some experience oppression. The second beast is economic. So military, physical, power, economic, power. Economic propaganda machine here seen by the second beast that exalts this power as divine, uh, exalts military power as being all-inclusive because when violence takes over, When a a nation has achieved power and holds power, they also control the, the economics. Who can import? Who can export? What can be manufactured? How much can you charge? Can you own your own stuff? Can you keep what you earn? Can you withhold from people? Those two things, military and economics, become power brokers on earth. The beasts demand full allegiance from the nations. In other words, believe we are all powerful. And this is symbolized by taking the mark of the beast. You believe they are the ultimate power. And they take this sign, this mark of the beast, on their forehead or their hand. And that number that they take is 666. Now, this too is a description that comes to us from Old Testament references, Um, most everyone, whether they've even ever read Revelation or not, is familiar with the the mark of the beast, 666. Remember, believers have already been marked by a signet ring previous to this. Now it's talking about the ones who don't. Who, If you don't believe in Jesus and the way and will of God, what do you believe in? Where are you putting your trust? What are you buying into? And this is telling us that they're buying into the idea that nationalism— or economics, wealth, that those are the two, and particularly when they're paired together, that they're the ultimate 
thing that has power. Okay, so let's talk about where does this reference of the of the mark of the beast come? Because we get a lot of imagery here. One is that this becomes the anti-Shema. Uh, the Shema is the ancient prayer of allegiance of Israel that comes to us from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength. They are commanded to write the commandments in the Old Testament. The Hebrew people wrote them, and they are commanded to write them and to tie them to their forehead and to their hands. Now, there's a practice by um, very observant Jewish people. They have these little boxes, and they have put Scripture in them. It's the Shema, and they literally tie them around their forearms and tie them around their head during times of prayer to make a literal representation of what they're supposed to do. That is a symbol of devoting all their thoughts and all their actions to God. So by taking this number on their forehead or on their hand, they are saying that they are devoting all of their thoughts and all of their actions to this idea that military and economic power are the ultimate powers of the world. Now the allegiance to nations are being demanded over God. They're demanding allegiance to their militaries and to empires and to economic systems. Okay. The second thing that we know about the Old Testament imagery seen in the Mark of the Beast is in the number 666. John spoke both Greek and Hebrew. And in both of those languages, letters are also numbers. Think about your Roman numerals. One is an I, 10 is an X, L means 50. The same thing was true in Hebrew. Now, the name Nero Caesar in Greek adds up to 666. The word beast adds up to 666 in Hebrew. So he is stirring together the ideas that the beast he's speaking of not only would be the leader of the empire of the time, but human empires stirred together become the mark of the beast, this conflation of military and economic power. John is not saying that Nero was the only fulfillment of this, but just one example of someone who is a fulfillment of this, that the nations become beasts when they exalt their own power and economic security as a false god and then demand total allegiance to themselves as though they are God. It was Babylon in Daniel's day, followed by Persia, followed by Greece. Now in John's day, it is Rome. And that same ancient pattern continues for any and all the later nations, including right up to our day, that act the same way. They are standing standing opposed to the beastly nations, and the dragon is another king. And that other king is the slain lamb. Chapter 14, the first part of it, is going to give us another vision of the lamb's army. The lamb's army have given their lives to follow him. From the new Jerusalem, their victory song goes out into what is called the eternal gospel. 
It calls all to repent, to worship the real God, to come out of Babylon, which is going to fall, and reminds them that their days are numbered. So here, once again, the Lamb's army is fighting with a word of truth, a call to justice, to repentance. We're carrying the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that your life, your fulfillment, your success, your purpose is not found in the empires of the world but in the loving, gracious empire of God. In the second part of chapter 14, it talks about the final justice of God. This is a vision of the final judgment. Remember, God's judgment is really the enactment of God's justice, which will reward the faithful and punish the unfaithful. We don't ever want to be the oppressor. And this is symbolized by two harvests. The first is a good harvest of grain. This is God's people. King Jesus comes and gathers the faithful. The second harvest is a harvest of wine grapes. In order for wine to be made, the grapes must be crushed. This symbolizes humanity's intoxication with evil. We are drunk on evil. We think it's the way to go. We are deluded into thinking that evil is good, that it's what's good for us, that we must fight in that way, that we must accomplish military power, nationalism, and we must accumulate much wealth. It's They are taken to the wine press, and that is trampled. So the wines, the grapes get destroyed. It's a very stark choice that is given to us. Resist the lure of Babylon and follow the lamb, or follow the beast and suffer defeat along with the beast. So now that we've seen the high point, we've had a clear picture of how the army of the Lamb is going to fight through faithfulness and loving our enemies and doing all we can to enact the will of God. We are now given a very stark choice. Get in the Lamb's army, fight with the Lamb, come out of Babylon, be part of the army of the Lamb of God, or Stay in the army of the beast and suffer what happens ultimately to him. So now that we've seen clearly what we need to do and been given that choice, now, now John is finally ready to move on and talk about the final cycle of seven, the seven bowls. And I'm going to do that in the next podcast.